This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. So today I am joined by somebody that Stoke fans may well know. In fact, you, I'm sure that a lot of you will have read some of his material, whether it be in the Sentinel or whether it be, you might glance over to your bookshelf and see something there with the name Simon Lowe on it. So welcome to Every Step Along the Way, Simon Lowe. Hello, how are you, Dan? I'm all right, thank you very much. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, very well. Brilliant. Uh, we're recording this hot on the uh, 24 hours after a nice 3-0 victory, aren't we, as well, against Swansea? Indeed, yes. Very good performance. Having said that, Swansea weren't great, were they? But, uh, yeah, we were attacking-wise, um, we were looking pretty uh, rampant, actually, I thought, at times. Um, it was only the last 10 minutes that we let off a bit when we were 3-0 up, and Swansea came back into it. But um, there's lots of promise there. Yeah, it's, I was uh, I was quite um, enthused by the the tempo that we were playing with, and it uh, it got to half time and it was still nil nil, and it just had that sinking feeling, thinking I've seen this many times before, and <laughs> <laughs> then what happens? Um, but no, we, we we seem to be a different beast at the minute, don't we? Well, yeah. new signings. Well, we could have scored three or four in that first half, um, and they should have had a man sent off for an elbow as well, by the way, um, but. Yeah, we we scored so early in the second half. I think that absolutely floored them. Um, and it was wonderful to see, uh, I'm going to call him JPB, just uh, <laughs> uh, score, scoring his first goal. OK, it was a bit of a scuff. They all count. Who cares? Um, but we, we put together some fantastic attacking football. Um, he was deservedly man of the match. But for me, Lewis Baker was just behind him, inches behind him. He was superb last night. Yeah, I was I was really excited about that signing yeah. when we made it, and he's he's every bit the player and more that I thought he was going to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's he's a I think he's the player we've been missing for a long time, isn't he? Like, and yeah, he's saw, also allowing Joe Allen to be a lot better as well. Yeah, Joe played very well last night, and I saw someone tweeting that uh, um, Baker's the Enzonzi replacement we needed five years ago, and they could well be right actually. Yeah. Yeah, a little less swagger, but probably yeah, the same end product. <laughs> less cocky, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> less French, if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> I mean, he was lucky himself as well. I think there was a bit of a naughty one left on, on Lewis Baker, wasn't there, in that game as well? Yes, there, there was. That, that could have been another red card as well. In fact, the red card that was shown was, I, I wasn't sure about that handball, to be honest. I was quite happy when we got that pen because yeah. I, I didn't see it in the, the run of play. No, it was one of them that it's like, because it's on the line, does it have to be a red? But yeah. it's a bit harsh on the defender. He hasn't deliberately handballed it, I don't think, yeah. there, has it? It's just sort of I bounced up was, and hit him. Yeah, it was, it was. It was a tad unlucky, but, you know, we've had so many things go against this recently that I'm just going to take it. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, now you've joined us today, haven't you? Because obviously I mentioned there that you know if people look over to the bookshelf, they will, you know, if they've got any Stoke City books on there, no doubt your name will probably appear on upon one of them, at least. Um, I mean, we've got 101 Golden Greats, Stoke City, uh, Stoke City Greatest Games, Match of My Life, uh, just to name obviously just a few probably that you that you've done. Yeah. Um, and then obviously now we've got the minute by minute, uh, which is basically 500 plus facts and moments uh, from the history of Stoke City. I mean, when you look back at those all those books that you've done, which which do you look at and think, oh, I really enjoyed you know, enjoyed that one the most, putting that together? Or oh, that's know. difficult. That's that's like which is your favourite child? <laughs> we all know that you've got one, but you can't say it out loud. Um, but as no one's listening. Um, actually a book that you didn't mention is my my favorite that I ever did because it was the hardest to do um, and that's a book called Potters at War which is about the periods from 1939 to 1947 um, when Bob Gregory was the manager uh, he took us through the second world war built a team that had been a great team beforehand we finished fourth in the first division in 1936 Stan Matthews Freddie Steele coming through and then he built this team of um, fantastic young potteries talent uh essentially nine of them were filling potteries uh plus a few others that were sort of filling in as well were from the potteries and uh they ended up uh in the 1946-47 season coming within one game of winning the league title had they won at sheffield united in the last game of the season they would have won the league title and unfortunately they lost very sadly. It's full of controversy as well. Just before that game, Stan Matthews was sold to Blackpool. Why would you do that? Um, and I was fortunate because I did it about, um, about 16, 17 years ago now. That uh, Some of those players were still alive. So I was able to talk to them and I'd interviewed some of the others that had then died over the previous 10 years for other uh, reasons as well. So, for example, I, I made the um, video history of Stoke City in 1997, that was. So we interviewed a lot of the players then. Um, people like John McHugh, Frankie Mountford, um, obviously Stan as well. And um, so I, I was able to sort of bring it to life, bring that period to life, because it's so the wartime period and, and, and that uh, post just immediate post-war is so alien to anything we've ever experienced, apart from arguably the COVID period has been a bit weird and arguably a little bit like that. Um, but uh, it's just so different to how football is now um, that I found that absolutely fascinating. And I, and I loved all the little details that I could find out about what, what their lives were like, um, how they had to darn their shirts um, to uh, to just keep kits on their back, basically, because the club had no money whatsoever. Um, and then how, how often uh, many of them travelled back from their units where they were posted um, back to Stoke just to play football. Um, which was an incredible commitment, really. Um, and you can compare that attitude to, um, let's just say, some of the players that we've had in the recent past. Uh, it's chalk and cheese. Yeah, I, I certainly can't see uh, many players taking the kit home to wash it and <laughs> look after it today. These they might travel from far end, maybe, and they're probably not in the same kind of vehicles as they probably did that uh, either. To be fair, Jesse Rodriguez was often quite a long way away. <laughs> yeah, he probably used teams like we are now to do his training. Oh, yeah, yeah Mark. <laughs> I think he tried a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I say with the 
with the book that you've got out now, because it came out in the, was it August of last year? It was last year, yeah. Yeah, the minute by minute book. I mean, like I say, it's it's a really good little format. Um, it's perfect, really, just to sort of pick up, put down, where you look at it for two minutes, ten minutes, an hour. Um, and so I'm like, like I've got I've, my one of my favourite things that I've just I've written down here, like it's 22 minutes. And it's like Ricardo Fuller's ripped holes at will in West Brom's defence in a devastating eight-minute period. Scored the first, forced Jonathan Green to put through his own net for the second. And then Fuller sets up John Parking for an eight-yard tapping. Stoke City are 3-0 up in this final playoff clash and go on to win 3-1. And it's not that just for me. That was one of my all-time favourite Stoke games. Oh, uh, that and, and, <laughs> <laughs> and just reading that, it just it all floods back. And I think it's a great bit for me because I've I've learned so much from before things that you maybe have heard people talk about and stuff, and then things that people have never mentioned before. And then there's so many things as well, like in the recent era. Obviously, I started um, sort of going to Stoke like in the mid '90s, um, and somehow stayed supporting them during that period. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, must be a glutton for punishment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but obviously, um, so obviously anything like the last, say, 25 years, 30 years, it's sort of reminiscing for me and just, you know, bringing th- things back from the, in my memory bank. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed, um, like I say, looking through and like I say, I, and the format. I mean, how did you, what, what made you think of the format as it was? Oh, I have to admit, it's not my format. It's the the publisher, Pitch Publishing. It's their format, and there have been books done on uh, other clubs before this. And they asked me to uh, create the one for Stoke um, that fits in with the format. And it's 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 pretty straightforward. It's just telling the story of the club, but instead of chronologically, you just say, right, this happened in the first minute. All of this happened in the second minute of whatever game. And I've chosen games from that post-war. Uh, period so it goes right back to 1945 the first game is just before VE day all the way through to uh, when I was writing it which was towards the end of last season so I think the last entry is January or February 2021 and and everything in between as you say there's over 500 uh, many of them are goals Uh, there are sendings off fights pitch invasions towel incidents uh, Potamus incidents, you name it, there's everything in there. And that, that was one of the joys of just finding random stuff happens to Stoke. Uh, and actually, originally, I'd planned to um, do the whole of the club's history because so much happened before the, the, uh, the Second World War. Um, but because of COVID, I, I, because we were locked down, I couldn't get to a library to research anything uh, pre-war. Um, so maybe I'll do the, um, the sort of uh, the prequel at some point. <laughs> I, was, I was going to say, I mean, how many of those, I mean, there's like there's over 500 sort of facts and a little quirky uh, bits and bobs in there. I mean, how many of them did you sort of know and how many, how much research did you have to put into it? Yeah, I've done uh, books, as you say, going back to, in detail to about 1970. Um, so I had quite a lot of knowledge about various things um, going back to that period. And then I'd done Potters at War, 
Um, I'd also um, written books with both Dennis Smith and Terry Conroy. So I'd covered the 60s or towards the second half of the 60s quite a bit. And then having made the video history of the club as well, I'd um, you know, covered the whole history. Um, so I knew quite a bit, but there were also things that I knew I needed to know. I needed to get in that I didn't really know in that much detail. Um, and the way the entries are written, it's it's reading as if it's happening rather than in the past tense. It's all in the present tense. Um, so I needed more uh, description from um, actual sources. So I went back to the uh, central archives, uh, went back to um, anything that was on Pafé News through to uh, the BBC, ITV, um, Sky, anything I could find on YouTube at all. Um, I've I've, there's some random VHS footage that someone's put on YouTube of the Lee Dixon overhead kick in the um, uh, the 7-2 thrashing of Leeds, for example, that's uh, not official at all. It's just someone had a camera in the stand and it's on YouTube. Um, it's amazing what you can find when you start uh, searching for things. Uh, and uh, it was then just sort of working out how best to bring them to life. As you say, it's, it's about... Each one is a moment, so it's about feeling what that moment was. And of course, any moment happened at that moment, but also there's there's stuff that leads up to it. Sometimes a moment is so exciting because of everything that has gone before, because there's some kind of vindication or it's a last minute goal or um, it's a really important game for whatever reason. Um, and it could be, uh, you know, Adi Akinbae's winning goal against uh, Reading to stave off relegation in the incredible 2003 um, survival season. Um, it it could just be the whistle going and the nil-nil draw against Leicester to win promotion to the Premier League. Um, you know, nothing actually happened. It was just the whistle blowing. Pitch invasion. Um, uh, Delilah, the the uh, someone standing on the uh, dugouts and then breaking and all of that. Um, so there's so many different things that go into it. And I think, as you say, you can dip into it and just find stuff, which is great, actually. Yeah, I mean, some of them things you mentioned there. I mean, we, we spoke to Carl Dickinson really recently, and he said yeah. that nil nil, that nil nil draw with Leicester. He said it was the most boring game of football he'd ever been involved in. It was <laughs> terrible. <laughs> yeah. Who cares? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think that's pretty much what he said. Like, he wouldn't change his stall. Um, I think the the only I think Carlo Nash had to make a pretty decent save, didn't he, towards the end? Yeah. I think that was it. That yeah. was it. Because <laughs> Leicester needed to win that game. They got relegated. Nobody remembers that now. Uh, <laughs> no. Remember Ian Holloway trudging off, having kind of sort of shaken Tony's hand. Um, he was stalking off because they got relegated, and he got sacked, obviously. Um, but yeah, Carlo made a pretty decent save actually but that's the last game he played uh, for us as well yeah i mean so i mean like i say you've 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 done all that research and i mean which what would you say is like your favorite fact in the book or or which one made you sort of like i know raise your eyebrows more than any other oh really this is, this is interesting um i think f for me it's always the ones that are actually before my time because I've lived through the, the ones that are in my time and I kind of know them and I'm, it's refreshing my memory. Um, and uh, there, there's one game in February 1946 uh, where by the 27th minute, um, this is the 15th of February 1946, Stokes scored their sixth goal 
to lead 6-1 against Chelsea. Uh, this is in the season um, uh, where we're uh, going towards uh, uh, finishing fourth. 6-1 um, up after 27 minutes. The only time we've ever got close to that in my lifetime is that amazing 6-1 victory against Liverpool. Of course, we were only 5-0 up by half-time, let alone 27 minutes. At that game finished 6-1. Nothing happened after that. <laughs> I mean, be the, knowing our look at the modern day and the Twitter and social media stuff, there'll be people complaining that the last hour was a bit boring. Yeah, only, only allowed. Second half was terrible. <laughs> yeah, well, it was just, you can't play for 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They don't need to. They've scored six by 27 minutes. Uh, I mean, I mean, you've also um, got another book on the horizon, so we're here. Yes, that's right. Uh, I mentioned that I've um, uh, worked with two uh, former players from the 60s and 70s, uh, Dennis Smith and Terry Conroy, on their autobiographies. And I'm in the process of um, working with another player from that kind of era, Eric Skeels, um, who's obviously the um, record club records uh, competitive appearance holder. Um, with uh, around 600 games for the club. Um, uh, Eric's a very different character to either Dennis or Terry, who are also different characters from each other. Um, so he, he's very much a, uh, a, a sort of uh, person who doesn't want the limelight. So it's been quite hard to persuade him to do a book, actually. Um, and he's one of those players that um, was an absolutely crucial member of the Stoke team that went from um, the end of the 50s when he made his debut, uh, which was not a good time at all. He played all the way through, Stan coming back, winning promotion, getting to two League Cup finals, um, getting into Europe. He played all the way through all of that. Um, incredibly, he played in every single outfield position for the club, including, slightly hilariously, as he tells it, centre-forward at Anfield on Boxing Day 1970, uh, which is when Tony Waddington basically decided to put 10 men behind the ball because he didn't play centre-forward at all. Um, he played, <laughs> played defensive midfield with the number nine shirt on. And <laughs> um, so he's, he's one of those players that I think um, isn't an icon, but was there at all the iconic moments. And it's his own kind of take on things. Uh, and the stage I've got to at the moment, and I've done all the interviews with Eric, um, just uh, finished just prior to Christmas, um, just writing things up now. He's seen a couple of chapters and he's very happy with them. Um, and uh, it, it's uh, being put together so that the, uh, the the writing has to be done by the start of April. It will then go to be typeset, proofread, etc., and should be out on the shelves sort of start of next season, September, that kind of time. But I mean, five hundred and ninety-seven Stoke games. That that's a lot of a lot of memories there. A lot of like yeah, a lot of stuff to be putting into a book. I mean. Must have been an absolute joy, really, sitting with him and, and going through, you know, obviously his life and his, his Stoke City career, and obviously before and after as well. But like I say, he's lived through the sort of the glory period there, anti, but not started off with the glory. He's seen it grow and develop, and been able to obviously tell you that story. That must have been such a so to say such an enjoying enjoying thing for you to do to sit and get that information out of him. 
Yeah, it is. It's really interesting because um, I tend to find with most footballers that they don't remember that much of games. They're too in it. They can remember some key, you know, key goals, key moments, um, certain key games, but they they don't remember them like we do. Um, that they're, they're they're too busy thinking about what happens next to remember what's just happened, um, and they're always thinking about um, the next game, the next game, the next game, rather than um, the glories of the past, which is what we all as fans um, kind of feed on, really. Um, so <clears throat> I tend to find that footballers' memories of actual games aren't particularly brilliant. Um, and what I tend to get more from them is all the stuff around it. What they do remember is all the times with their mates, their teammates, um, training, um, which can be both um, fun and a uh, significant number of fights happen in training. Any football team will tell you that. Um, in fact, I'd be worried if they weren't happening, to be honest. Um, uh, there would be um, going uh, abroad to represent the club. That Stoke used to, Tony Wollington loved taking the club abroad. They'd go all over the world. Um, so Eric's played all, all over the world. Uh, it was absolutely remarkable for a, a lad from Eccles in Manchester um, to end up having that kind of life. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he's eternally grateful to um, to the, the Potteries because he moved to Stoke when he was 18 uh, and uh, he's, he's stayed in the area pretty much. He, he moved away for a very short time, um, but he stayed in the area pretty much. He, he still lives in uh, Newcastle under Lyme now and, and, and just loves the people of the Potteries. And I think they took him to his heart, to, to their hearts, and, and he really appreciated that. And he's actually got, um, he, he's a relatively shy, retiring type. He's actually got a very funny sense of humour. Um, and I think it's going to be the kind of book that um, when fans who remember Eric um, read it, they'll, they'll remember the games, yeah, but they'll also learn that maybe a bit more about what he was like, um, the fun that they had, um, the what they went through. Uh, to because it, it was hard work, uh, especially back then, um, and what they um, what they really got out of it as well, because it was it ended up being a hugely glorious period, um, especially with the uh, the League Cup win in '72, obviously, which we're just about to uh, we're what three three ish weeks away from celebrating the 50th anniversary of, unbelievably. Yeah, I mean, like I say, we. You're talking that period there of, like I say, a decade and a half um, of Eric's time with Stoke. And it's just testament to to the club and, like I say, the history and, and how much goes on around the club. That you've got the return of what, you know, one of the greatest footballers probably this country has ever produced in Stanley Matthews. Yeah. Then you've got possibly, arguably the greatest goalkeeper the world's ever seen, Gordon Banks, signing for the club with a League Cup final in the middle and a promotion. <laughs> yeah. Then you've got then you've got building building that again more towards uh, the club's uh, major honour, only to date major honour in in the seventy two League Cup. And then obviously um going going on from that as well. Um it just shows and that's even like I say, even in just a, a compact space like that, four things that any club would be proud to have really, wouldn't they? You know, to uh, any club would be proud to be associated with people like Stanley Matthews, Gordon Banks, and I think this. I think the the you know, the League Cup uh, final where they lost to Leicester, it doesn't really get mentioned enough. Considering we're not a club that's got a load of 
yeah, we haven't got a ton of silverware, have we? Especially like major honours and stuff. So to have, you know, we've only reached three major cup finals in our history. Yeah. It, it doesn't really, you, you very rarely hear that, that you know, the, um, the, the side that lost the last team get mentioned enough, in my opinion. No, that's right. Absolutely. Um, you know, they only lost by one goal. Um, ended up being four three on aggregate, uh, and uh, there was an incident right at the very that we we it was actually four two on aggregate, and then we scored with about three or four minutes to go. But I think we um, hit the bar right at the very very end. So it was very close to being uh, for, to to getting level, um, but unfortunately Leicester hung on, and of course Leicester had Gordon Banks in goal. Um, so, so Tony wanted to <laughs> and bought him a couple of years later to uh, ensure that we had him and not them. That must have been his master plan with that one Hudson as well then after the, yeah. <laughs> the 72 final. So, got to pick one from Chelsea, we'll, we'll have him. <laughs> Definitely have him, yeah. Well, Eric <laughs> talked about uh, Huddy, they, they were really good friends. Um, completely different characters. You could not get two more different people, especially at that point. <laughs> Um, but I think Eric, Eric kind of, if it was possible to calm Alan down, calmed him down a bit. Um, and occasionally Alan would lead Eric astray. <laughs> Which makes all the more entertaining for yourself. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> but, I mean, like I say, you've got um, some great stories, I imagine. And, and, and I mean... You've said there that Eric stayed in the potteries, and it's funny that in the modern day we've we've had a lot of players come into the city who've settled, and you know even people who've been to different clubs maybe left Stoke and gone to other clubs, but stayed sort of living in the potteries and stayed living around Stoke. I think the city doesn't always doesn't always get the the greatest of reputations, does it? But I think you know the fact that 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 kind of stuff happens. And they might not live directly in Stoke, but they want to be associated with it and still live locally. Um, you know, talking people like Liam Lawrence, you know, I know Rick, Ricardo Fuller, Mam Sadibi yeah. all still live. Um, Levi, obviously Rory, um, still at the club. And I think that just shows that the area, although it doesn't get a great reputation in the wider scheme, there obviously is something here that, that people enjoy once they dig in and beneath the surface with the, with the people around here. I think that's right. And uh, I've, I've seen that, you know, uh, same for Eric. That's You're talking that's 50, 60 years ago when he felt that. We've seen that with uh, players even before that, um, that uh, it, it, it's got this kind of, if you get the vibe of, of the Potteries and the way Potteries people are, if you're that kind of person, then you're absolutely going to love it. Um, because I don't think there are too many areas like the potteries anymore. Um, I, th I think it's got a particular kind of feel uh, to it in, in terms of how we welcome um, our, uh, um, in this case, footballing stars. Um, I, I'd, I'd say it's the same for other types of stars as well, like actors, um, singers. We, we hold them very dear to our hearts. Um, and yes, we celebrate them, but we also know that they're just humans as well. So we just treat them like normal people. Mm. I mean, who would have thought Mama Sadibi would be opening a cake shop in Hanley? I mean, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> <laughs> but it happened. There's so many things that I never thought would happen. Just happened. 
and it's incredible, absolutely amazing. I know, and I hear like you regularly where Mama's playing like five a side or so, or Sunday league football turning out somebody was a favour, or and the same with Rick, I think, has been as well. Uh, I think Rick just turns up with his boots everywhere, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Kind of, kind of play. <laughs> Anyone short? <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking right at you, you're off the team, Rick. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, is there anybody, obviously, looking at their, the say the recent 10, 15 years, um, any of like those, those sort of recent stars that you'd you'd love to do you delve into and sit down and maybe do a do a book with? Well, I think the the obvious one is the man who's uh, an absolute legend who's just retired, Ryan Shawcross. I would love to do that, um, but I understand he's now just got a job and he's going back to the states, unfortunately. Um, but maybe one day, maybe one day, it might be a bit early for him to want to tell his story at the moment. He's, he needs to concentrate on um, the second part of his career, which is obviously going to be coaching, and um, I'm, I'm pretty sure he'll get into management. Um, but that that's the the player that I would love to uh, to do, and I think um, Stoke fans would love to hear his side of the incredible journey that he went on with us. Because from the second he pulled that shirt on, made his debut down in Cardiff, and scored the winning goal on debut as a youngster, um, it was pretty much um, rock and roll football, wasn't it, for a decade? Um, absolutely unbelievable. Until it all, you know, it all went horribly wrong, clearly. Um, but you know, we we saw things as we were just saying that with with Mama in his cake shop, we saw things on the pitch as well that we never thought we'd see again. Twenty three years without seeing Stoke City in the the Premier League or First Division as it was. And I I was lucky. You said that you started supporting the team in the nineties. I I first saw Stoke play in the late seventies. So I I saw a number of years in the uh, the First Division. Seen us beat Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal in the first division. Um, so I'd had that, but I was yearning for it because it was such a long time going to Wigan and Bury and Bournemouth and all <laughs> sorts of old places, um, Cambridge, uh, you know, just these places that we knew we shouldn't be playing at, but, but the club was in such a state. Uh, and I think um, we really have to recognise the job that um, firstly Peter Coates did uh, and secondly obviously uh, Tony Peardis and then the subsequently Mark Hughes did on the pitch to, to turn the club into one heck of a force in that time. I mean people were genuinely scared to come to the Brit. It was marvellous. Yeah it's the only it's the only ground I've ever seen a goalkeeper kicked the ball out for a corner rather than a throw and put it that uh, way. That, yeah, I mean, that that game, um, because just before <laughs> that, um, of course, Dean Windass had been booked despite not being on the pitch because <laughs> yeah. he was warming up in front of Rory Delap trying to take a throw on on purpose. <laughs> uh, just um, random things. So that, that, that game was hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. It, it just showed as well that I don't think they weren't sort of spur of the moment things either I think they'd, it's as if that had been discussed previously like, you know if you get the opportunity knock the ball out for a corner rather than a throw in or yeah Dean you know you're going go and put him off when he's trying to it's as if like that's that's the point that throw-ins have got to in people's heads that and I think that's what made it more potent as well was people were that we people would 
like just abandon all the usual thing of right okay this ball comes in the box head it away that went out the window it was like okay we've got to do something out of the ordinary here to stop this ending up in the net when really I suppose if they just concentrated on watch the fly to the ball win the ball get it away that probably would have been the best the best solution but absolutely the, the, two home, the two home games before that, of course, were the visits of Spurs, Spurs and then Arsenal. Um, and obviously the, the Arsenal game when we won 2-1 and scored two of the scrappiest, horrible <laughs> goals you've ever seen. But my God, they were brilliant. The, the first one, which, which Rick flicks in at the, uh, the tunnel end, Colo Torres appealing for offside from a throw-on. I mean, he's lost his senses. <laughs> what is the um, and then the other one, Sayoli from Jana, literally just falls on the ball and puts it through <laughs> yeah. um, the keeper's legs. Uh, and then dives straight to the keeper's <laughs> legs himself. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, and the one before that was the, the, the Spurs game where Gareth Bale gets sent off. The ball gets flown, blown off the penalty spot a couple of times before Higgy scores. Rory Delap ends up with the ball in the net with that famous photograph of him clenching the net and screaming at the booth and and then they have a player sent off and then Aurelia Gomez cries because you just can't <laughs> anymore and then we hit the the post both posts and then uh, Fuller hits both posts with another penalty and then we wax the bar with the follow-up I and mean, it was just unbelievable action live on Sky of course that add that to the Arsenal game and people were scared out of their wits to go onto that pitch it was it was quite incredible to see um and of course by that stage we were all doing all the flappy hands in the stands and the every time we had (laughs) and and all of that which of course then developed into the Wenger at one point which um I, i still love match of the day for featuring that that really did uh, that that added to the whole mystique thing because bless him Arsene couldn't take it either could he no he, he wasn't um he did he wasn't the best for humor was he especially if he was on the end of it no, um, i don't think he had any sense of humor in in that way especially, especially not when he when he got off the m6 onto the a500 that it all sort of disappeared at that point into no no it's all gone back <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned Peter Coates there. I mean, I think that if you could get a book with Peter Coates, that would be some story to tell there, wouldn't they? Like the redemption and the first time round, and that would be a story, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. I mean, he he had a very tough time the first time round. Yeah, I don't think it was necessarily undeserved in many ways, but I th- I think um, people didn't really understand the parlous state the club was in. Um, in a way, I think he kind of saved it by selling it because I don't know he could have supported it much longer if the Icelandic consortium hadn't taken it on. Uh, and at the time, there was quite a lot of controversy about the fact that he kept what were called golden shares. Um, so they could only sell the club back to him. But I now think there was a master plan. Um, I think it was a plan all along um, to give it away while he concentrated on something else. We now know that was Bet365 and it's done really well. Um, and then have the club back again. And it seems to have worked quite well. If it wasn't a master plan, he's probably just going to claim it was a master plan at this stage. Um, 
Uh, he also, though, you have to say he selected managers, um, the first two, Tony Pulis and then Mark Hughes. They, they were brilliant selections and correct at the time. And I think we probably all know that he should have sat Hughes at the end of the season when we were nosediving, um, which is obviously the season before we then get relegated. And he should have sat Hughes earlier in the season that we got relegated in. Um, to do it when he did, I know it was sparked by the horrible defeat at Coventry um, in the FA Cup, but it should have happened before that. Um, and it was already partway through a window. And then they couldn't get the managers, at least two of them, that, that uh, they wanted. And we ended up with Paul Lambert and it just didn't work. Unfortunately, he had a very fractured squad full of people who were not that bothered. Um, and, and that's that's just not a recipe for success at Stoke. <clears throat> if you're not prepared to give at least 100% and then a bit more, you're in trouble here. Yeah, I, I agree there. I think, like you say, his choice of managers, ironically with Mark Hughes, it probably got to the point where they were better off leaving him to the end of the season. Because, yeah, no. he's probably gone gone that far down the line with the, and but it's like how when they've been they've been in decline for about eighteen months or so, yet there was seemed to be no plan in place to replace him. It's it seemed like something that had been building for eighteen months had just dawned on them in one game, and that Coventry game is like okay, he's got to go now. <laughs> Uh, I I know. I think there were various other things around that with a similar kind of vein. There was a a whole period, probably of about a year, when anyone with any sense was saying, (laughs) we need a left back. And then uh, Tony Scholes turns up at a fans forum, um, I think with John Coates, I think from memory, um, and someone put that question to them and they said, what do you mean? What left back problem? And like we'd all been going on about it for at least a year. We have a massive issue at left back, um, but the, but they hadn't realised it. Uh, and I think there was that there was a sort of trying not to say the word arrogance, but I can't think of a better one, whereby they thought it could never happen to Stoke anymore. We'd been there for ten years. That because there were always three teams coming up, the chances are that at least two of them will go back down, and it wouldn't be us. Um, as it happened that particular season, the teams that came up stayed up. Um, and it was us and uh, Swansea, and uh, I forget the other one that went down actually. Uh, was it Sunderland? Or were they already gone? Anyway, they were three. Chances are it was Norwich or West Brom, they seem to have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's West Brom, yeah. Us, us, West Brom, and Swansea, three teams that were established. Um, we'd been there 10 years I think West Brom were 7 or 8 and Swansea were 6 or 7 um, <clears throat> that we all we all went and the uh, the promoted teams all stayed up which is very unusual and I think they, they'd kind of got to a stage where they thought it couldn't happen and unfortunately in football we all know and especially at a club like Stoke that if you're not on it all the time it well can happen and does unfortunately um, and it really put us in a tailspin because until Michael O'Neill came, we we nosedived horribly. I mean, some of the football we played under Nathan Jones was absolutely horrific. I hated it. It, it was grim as anything I saw in uh, in the old third division, for example. Um, it was it was awful. 
it's it's been to me that he had, there was no there was no plan with Nathan Jones's for whether whether they weren't doing what he'd asked them to do it was as if they just went out and just kicked the ball about. There didn't seem to be any tactics behind it or any sort of pl- any plan, any any way of stopping the opposition or looking to build what they what we wanted to do. It was just like, yeah, go on, let's go. I'll, I'll go out and play. That's how it appeared to be half the time. It did. It, it was very kind of ragtag and bobtail. And you look at actually what he's done at Luton, either side of his stint in the Potteries, and that's not how his teams have been. And I, I don't really understand it. <clears throat> and maybe he just couldn't get his message across to the players. Maybe there was such militance within that group for whatever reason. It might not have been Nathan. It might have just been the situation. Um, it needed it needed a much more experienced hand to sort them out. And, and that's mm. where Clonil has um, done an amazing job for me. The turnover in that squad, I mean, even in this transfer window that's just closed in January 2022, I don't think any of us saw the turnover coming that, uh, that has occurred. And we've ended up yet again with a much stronger squad than we, uh, we came into the transfer window with. With some yeah. very exciting players. Uh, and um, the, the the sort of players that, that fans, certain fans have moaned about a bit have moved on. And I think we'll see that in the summer as well. There are two or three more that will go, um, some of them at the end of their contracts. Um, some of them we might see a couple of sales potentially. Um, but I think we can all see that um, he's brought the average age of the squad down massively. He's given talented youngsters opportunities and mostly they have taken them as well. We've got some other talented youngsters coming through. I mean, Emery Tesgall getting on the pitch a couple of times in the FA Cup is absolutely fantastic. Um, and, and let's hope we can keep and develop him. Um, we've got players out on loan at the moment um, who are doing really well. So it, it does bode very well. Um, and then I do think that the team should be in a slightly better position than we are right now this season. We've lost too many games, especially at home in the last few months. Um, but I think we're going to have a decent end to the season. Whether that can quite get us into the playoffs, we'll see. But there's not many clubs that are going to fancy playing us. I mean, we gave Fulham a heck of a game a couple of weeks ago um, and they only just squeaked past us. <clears throat> We've absolutely mullered Swansea, should have scored more goals. Um, and we'll now see how we get on against the form team of the division, Nottingham Forest, um, because uh, that is going to be a very tough uh, game. And they've just won at uh, at Blackburn tonight, the night we're recording on, um, which is no mean feat. We've seen how good Blackburn are. Uh, So I think uh, there's going to be some some exciting games to come for the rest of the season. Yeah, I mean, I... I say the, the fact that we are, I mean, going into tonight, is the sixth to 14th were separated by four points. Yep. And, and the fact that we're in there, and you could arguably say we haven't been able to put our strongest side or anywhere near our strongest side since probably middle of October. Yeah. Yet we're still in there. And now, <clears throat> like you've said there, the, with the incomings and outgoings in January, we've worked, we're alongside FFP. We've had to, whatever we've brought in, we've had to, have the same amount of money going out, whether that be wages or or um, get some transfer fee in like for Sam Surridge. And we've we've improved. Every player who's come in is sort of a first team player. So we've improved the, half the first team with no outlay. And and now you're looking the rest of the season thinking, well, 
if we've not been able to put our best team out and we are in and around the playoffs, surely we are stand, you know, if we if these players can stay fit and and stay together, then surely we're in with a good shout of, of putting a good challenge in for that top six. I think we'd have a yeah, I think we will have a good end of the season. I think um injuries are crucial. We we're a different side with Nick Powell on the pitch. We all know he's injury prone, but at the moment he's fit and he's just back. That's great. Obviously, Tyrese Campbell went off last night. Um, we're hoping that knee isn't uh, isn't what happened last time because he was out for such a long time and he's just starting to show lots of promise. Um, it, it's taken him a while, but uh, it, you know he, he is a, a fantastic player. Um, but actually, I wrote my column last weekend on we've got such an array of talent now. If we're playing 4-2-3-1, we've got five or six players for those three behind the main striker. Uh, who who's your first choice? Because it, it, you can you can argue it all ends up, um, and uh, you've got three that could be playing that lone role up front: uh, Major Fletcher and uh, Brown. Uh, you've got um, then the, the possibility of switching back to three five two with wing backs, which is what we played for a lot of the season. Personally, I think this squad fits the full two three one much better and I think that's why we saw the the performance we did last night. Yeah, I think the start of the season, the the three centre halves probably suited them well, didn't it? And I think he was looking to build from the back. But the the players that they've got now, then the players that have come back and it now, like I say, four two three one is probably the best option now. And I think that's the manager's preferred formation, isn't it? looking back at what he's tried to play before this season, the best football we've played was in was playing that way. And like I say, to think that you, you've got a choice of Powell or Vrancic, um, you've got exciting young wingers like Wright Phillips and Philodine Bedace, Philodine Bedace. Like I say, Tyrese Campbell hopefully is going to you know, it's it's not going to be a long term thing. Fingers crossed for him there. Uh, you know, and then you see you've got Maggio, Fletcher, Brown, three different strikers up front as well. I mean, I was I was I was as nervous last week when we played Wigan that, that Powell was playing. Oh, I can't deal with another Powell injury. Since <laughs> it was a game, and, uh, and it's like just the coming fit. I mean, Remain Sawyer's. He was. I think he was a player that got a lot of stick before he got injured, but it was only when he went out the side that we sort of people were like, oh yeah, I can now see what he brought to the team. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's a fantastic player. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed watching him, but just, yeah. I couldn't couldn't get why he was getting so much so much stick. Like, I I, I know it it's it is a strange one sometimes. I I think. Sometimes you get players like that who people want to see be the best player on the pitch for 90 minutes. And, and it's, not, you know, it's not that easy when you've got 11 players trying to stop you because they know you're supposed to be the best player. Um, he, he is a very good player. I mean, he's, he's ripped us apart when he's been playing for other teams on many occasions, especially at Brentford. Um, he's uh, someone that I think will slot back into the... Um, this new formation, because obviously he was mostly playing in the three-five-two, um, really neatly. The question, the question is though, who doesn't play? Because I thought um, uh, Baker and Allen were really good 
together last night. Joe had one of his his, his best games for a while, actually. Um, uh, and I think Baker is, is a nailed on starter for a very long time. Yeah, give him the armband. Give him first name on the team sheet. He's, yeah, because uh, yeah, th- obviously last week at, uh, at Huddersfield, he was, when he was captain and Joe came on, he didn't give Joe the armband then. <laughs> he, wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't handing it over. <laughs> I mean, it's, I've been surprised as well, like, uh, just how good Phil Jagielka has been. You would not think he was sort of 39 at all. You know, it just shows that, you know, the, as a centre-half, you know, the first two, three yards are in your head, aren't they? And he, as long as you've still got that, because he's still got tremendous pace as well for somebody <laughs> who's has. obviously in the latter stages of his career. Yeah, I, I, I've been very impressed with him, especially his pace. Um, you know, I, I haven't seen him really being beaten for pace. He's been challenged for pace, but not beaten yet. Um, for someone who's 39, that's that's some going. But a lot of that will be in his experience and his reading of the game as well, of course, to get himself in the right positions. I, I thought he was completely untroubled last night. I also thought Leon Moore had a fantastic debut against Wigan as well, because they're, they're a decent side. I've seen Wigan a couple of times this season. I've seen them um, do very, very well. Uh, and we kept we kept them reasonably quiet, I thought, and I thought he strolled through the game. So there's another choice. And of course, we've got Harry Zeta to come back. So there's going to be all sorts of um, competition for places, and, and that can only be a good thing. You know, the Championship is a very attritional league. We know that you're going to get injuries. Like you know, we've had injuries to our really key players over the last couple of years, and it has affected us. It's bound to. But I think now we've got yet more strength and depth to be able to plug some of those gaps uh, when they occur. Yeah, I mean, to me, I think I I've said um, had a few conversations on Twitter and that they're saying that I want a key player, Joe Bursic, as to how we play as well, and. I mean, as as a with the ball, I'm talking there. I mean, I think Adam Davies had his qualities and could arguably be described as a better shot stopper than Bursic. But I think when we were trying to play the possession football and keep the ball moving around, I think the defence are a lot more comfortable passing back to Bursic and, t- and knowing that he can then find them than they were with Davies. I think they were reluctant to go back to him or if they did, they would, they would sort of stay narrower, not giving wider options. Um, and then, then that resulted in the ball going long more often. And I think that that's, that's where the style change came in. I think we maybe, when Bursic got injured, we, we tried to carry on playing out from the back and he got us into trouble a few times. Then we were sort of stuck in between and that we didn't have, we had sort of players, we'd lost, we'd lost him, we'd lost Suter, lost Sawyers, lost Powell, uh, obviously Campbell wasn't fit. So you've got sort of the spine of your side there, all you know, straight down the middle. And five obviously good footballers, you know, ball players as well. And we were trying to still play that way, but without the personnel probably to do it. Yeah, I think um, firstly, Joe is a, um, a fantastic young keeper. He's obviously England international um, youth level now. Um, I, I think he has got uh, a, a bit to learn and a bit to develop. And I think arguably Adam Davis was a better shot stopper, I think particularly in one-on-one situations. Adam Davis was very good, very quick off his line, very quick out. 
Um, but you're absolutely right. His uh, distribution um, uh, isn't as good as, as Joe's. Uh, I think Joe's really worked on that. That's that's developed, and it is part of our game now. Um, and uh, I think the more, <clears throat> particularly on the the break, uh, we can utilise that. We've got a lot of pace in our side. Uh, and I think that that's uh, also something that the uh, 4-2-3-1 gives us as well because it gives us wider players slightly higher up the pitch to hit, um, whereas the wing-backs would always be starting just that sort of 15, 10, 15 yards deeper. Um, so by the time they've got the ball turned and progressed with it, the opposition is able to get uh, uh, organised a bit quicker. Um, and then we have to play a lot more, whereas um, four, four, two, three, one feels a bit like, like we were up and at them. Um, again, last night, Swansea weren't great anyway. Um, so may, maybe that that's an exceptional game. But we'll, we'll see when we're up against some of the better teams how that works out. Yeah, well... I think it's been a pleasure to speak to you, Simon. And um, if you just want to remind, obviously, the listeners and that about you know where where they can where they can get your current uh, latest book, and also when the uh, Eric Skeels one is likely to be available. Yeah, of course. Um, so the book's called Stoke City Minute by Minute. Um, it's available now. All good bookshops. It's in the club shop, uh, Waterstones. You name it. Uh, obviously also get it in certain online bookstores as well and the uh, Eric Skills uh, autobiography um, which is going to be called not surprisingly for those who know him what's it all about Alfie because his nickname was Alfie uh, that's going to be out uh, August September uh, later this year and of course you can always read my uh, weekly musings in the Sentinel as well. Brilliant. Again, like I said, just it's been a pleasure to have you on, mate. I really enjoyed that chat. And um, yeah, I'll speak to you soon. Great to speak with you, Dan. All the best, everyone. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.